So in this meditation, I would like to consider how our Lord deals with sinners. And we're going to do this by looking um, at the sinful women that we find in the gospel, in sinful women, quote unquote. We have the one that's taken in adultery. We have the other who comes to anoint our Lord's feet when he's at dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, when you make this meditation, perhaps you'll want to break it up into two parts. So the first part is the woman taken in adultery. This is from John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. And the second is the anointing of our Lord's feet, which is Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. So as I say, there, neither one is very long, but you could probably break this up depending on how fruitful um, you find your considerations. So I'm going to read through it once, and then we'll, then we'll begin with the commentary. So John chapter 8, verse 1. And Jesus went unto Mount Olivet, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and sitting down he taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees bring unto him a woman taken in adultery, and they set her in the midst, and said to him, Master, this woman was even now taken in adultery. Now Moses in the law commanded us to stone such a one, but what sayest thou? And this they said, tempting him, that they might accuse him. But Jesus, bowing himself down, wrote with his finger on the ground. When therefore they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again, stooping down, he wrote on the ground. And they, hearing this, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest and Jesus alone remained, and the woman standing in the midst. Then Jesus, lifting up himself, said to her, Woman, where are they that accuse thee? Hath no man condemned thee? Who said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither will I condemn thee. Go, and now sin no more. So I was going to go ahead and read Luke's gospel now about the anointing of our Lord's feet, but I think maybe it's best, it might make it a little easier for you at home, if we go ahead and make our commentary on this first incident, and then we'll read the scripture passage, maybe even the, the people doing the podcast, maybe they'll break it up into two separate conferences. So we'll leave that to them. Verse 1, And Jesus went unto Mount Olivet, verse 2, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and sitting down he taught them. So the first thing we might note is, is to consider how our Lord goes up to Mount Olivet. He prays before he speaks, before he takes up his teaching, he prepares himself spiritually. Now, our Lord is there teaching, and these Pharisees are going to come, and they're going to interrupt his teaching. It would be very interesting to know maybe what topic our Lord was, was teaching on that day, or what, what passage of scripture he was commenting on. Maybe they, had they been listening... <laughs> Who knows, maybe they would have acted differently. But instead, of course, they're too busy watching Jesus as how they might trap him. Now, the, the lesson that we might draw from this is just to maybe stop and consider how our behavior um, can be a, a source of scandal to people, even without our knowing it. Um, a parent is very much under a microscope, you know, in the home. The children are watching to see... Um, you know, what mom or what dad or what big brother does. Um, the priest, you know, certainly is under a microscope. And it's it's easy for, you know, us to, in positions of authority, you know, if I'm a boss at work or a priest in the pulpit or a, or a parent at home or what have you, that station that is held is going to demand 
that we set a very good example for those under us. And children or employees or even faithful maybe, they, like the Pharisees, might be trying to lay traps for us in the sense that, you know, maybe somebody has an opinion or an agenda. They ask us to, uh, to, to weigh in on it. And we end up, you know, getting drug into, into various camps, you know. And again, maybe, you know, mom, mom is asked a question and, you know, the, the kids are hoping, you know, that they'll get the answer they want because dad is already giving them the answer. And they're, they're trying to, you know, play both sides or play one, one against the other. Um, just something we can, you know, maybe think about making sure we're not doing that, obviously, but then also being on guard not to get, to get drug, as I said, into the various camps or factions, but to, but to stay focused only on our Lord. Verse three, and the scribes and Pharisees bring unto him a woman taken in adultery and they set her in the midst and said to him, master, this woman was even now taken in adultery. Now, they come and they put her on public trial, and we might maybe learn from this uh, the discretion that we should have when it comes to, you know, broadcasting the faults of others. Um, Notice how they address him as master, all right, and that's really a manifestation of their hypocrisy. They don't don't have any respect for him. They don't... uh, they don't follow him, and yet they, they address him in this, you know, in these honeyed words, let's say. We might wonder, too, they're bringing this, dragging this woman in on trial. Where is the man? Why, uh, why is it that they only bring, uh, you know, the weaker one to, to suffer the consequences of, of the bad action? Verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us to stone such a one, but what sayest thou? Now, the only commentary or point of reflection that we might we might draw here or spend time on is the idea that while while these laws of the Old Testament, of course, they no longer um, apply in the new. And yet these old commandments and the injunctions and the and the consequences for violating these these commandments in the Old Testament, it helps us to understand and to see how God views such betrayals. You know, following our own will, God calls adultery. You know, he speaks about a wicked and adulterous generation that has abandoned their spouse, has betrayed their spouse, which is is God. And so, too, you know, we might just in, in passing, you know, comment, you know, in the Old Testament, the child that cursed their parents was to be stoned. And so, again, obviously that doesn't doesn't apply anymore. All right. It's those laws have been superseded by the by the New Testament, by the new covenant between between God and and his and his chosen people his new chosen people and yet it shows us just how God disdains this this kind of behavior whatever it is verse 6 and this they said tempting him that they might accuse him but Jesus bowing himself down wrote with his finger on the ground now we're told that they're tempting him they're laying a trap for him now, our Lord has always been the champion of the, the poor and the lonely, the lowly and the sinner. And if he says stone her, well, then that's going to have the effect of undermining his mercy. And they may fear him or, or lose confidence in him, these, these same poor, poor sinners. On the other hand, if he says let her go, it can be a, a scandal to, to the just, to those, those people that were they're doing their best to follow the law. Either way, he risks losing um, a part of those who are are seeking the truth, either the sinners or the just. And so what does our Lord do? We see that he doesn't rush into an answer. He takes time to reflect. He avoids precipitation, which we are always cautioned against in the spiritual life. 
but he takes time to reflect and to consider. He draws on the ground, he writes in the ground, and it's been speculated what he was writing. And some of the fathers of the church and some commentators have speculated he was actually writing sins in the ground that the people in the crowd were guilty of having committed. So he's manifesting his knowledge that, that all souls are open to him. And he doesn't, as we said, he doesn't rush into an answer, but they continue to push him. Verse 7, when therefore they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said to them, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And he goes back to, to, to writing on the ground. He's, he stoops back down. Now, we can learn a lot from this incident. And I would say that the first thing that we should consider is that anytime we see a fault in someone else, we should really examine ourselves. Instead of rushing to condemn, we should really examine ourselves and see if perhaps we're guilty of the same thing. In, in particular, when it is something that, that especially disturbs us. Many spiritual authors have pointed out that that which, which most bothers me in the people around me is often the very faults of which I'm guilty of. And there's something, maybe it's subconscious, you know, I see someone being dishonest or, or lazy or unjust or whatever, and I get very upset and very agitated and very zealous. I'm ready to, I'm ready to strike out. It very often happens that those sins that most upset me are the very ones that I possess. In addition, we can say that, you know, if someone is guilty of certain sins, that person naturally assumes that everyone is that way. If I tend to be lazy, I assume that, well, everybody, everybody knocks off, you know, early to go home. And if I'm uh, maybe dishonest, well, I assume that everyone steals from the cash register. You know, come on, you know, don't tell me you don't do that. You know you do it. If a person is impure, they assume that everyone is is a pervert or everyone is is doing things that are that are uh, of an impure nature we tend to project our own faults onto others and so again when we perceive that someone around us is doing something wrong the first thing we should do is examine our conscience and as i say particularly when it's something that that upsets us greatly and another thing we must avoid is the idea that Somehow we are above certain sins, you know, I mean, that, that happens, you know, you know, we, we hear about something and, and we say, oh gosh, I would never do that. And I remember one of our professors saying, you know, do, never say never, you know, that, that anyone, any one of us is capable of any sin whatsoever, um, were it not God's grace that, that preserved us, you know, the old expression there, but for the grace of God go I. Um, Terentius, you know, uh, speaking in, in ancient times, he said, I am human and I consider nothing human is alien to me. We, we know that we are all weak. We are, we know that we are all wounded by original sin. We know that put in, um, a bad situation, you know, extreme poverty, extreme duress, extreme danger. Any one of us, again, we're capable of pretty much any sin. You know, St. Philip Neri, you know, he used to, uh, being very, very aware of his own weakness, he used to tell his prayer to Almighty God was simply, you know, Lord, don't trust Philip. Um, this is the, the attitude of the humble man, and it is certainly something that, that a good Christian is, is going to be conscious of, cognizant of, and it's precisely that that's going to move him to be merciful. I was meditating this morning on this particular incident, and it occurred to me that the more holy someone is, meaning the more that they are like, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the more they're going to be inclined towards mercy. The people accusing this poor woman are anything but like Jesus. They are, in fact, his, his mortal enemies, we can say. Now, verse 8. And again, stooping down, he wrote on the ground. Now, we've already commented how the church fathers speculate that our Lord began to write the sins of the people there in the dirt. This woman, okay, she committed adultery, but he begins to write on the ground usury, theft, impurity, blasphemy, sacrilege, backbiting, calumny, detraction. Our Lord had said, whoever among you is, that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He had gone back to this writing. Verse 9, but they, hearing this, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. And Jesus alone remained, and the woman standing in the midst. They went out one by one, obviously maybe as he wrote each sin down. Convicted by their own conscience, they, they turn away. Beginning with the eldest, we can see as we as we uh, get older, maybe we maybe we do tend to have more compassion on those around us, seeing our own failings and growing in wisdom and knowing the weakness of men. It's interesting to observe how once everyone goes away, this woman doesn't flee. You'd think if she was really in fear of her life, soon as people you know left, she would take off. But she's she's standing there, and our Lord is still you know stooping in the dirt. I'm reminded a little bit of Our Lady maybe standing at the foot of the cross and you know, wanting to be close uh, to our Lord. When we stand close to Jesus, we can stand anything. Verse 10, Then Jesus, lifting up himself, said to her, Woman, where are they that accuse thee? Hath no man condemned thee? We're told he lifts himself up, so he's about to act as God and forgive this woman's sins. Verse 11, Who said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither will I condemn thee. Go and now sin no more. These words of our Lord, to go and sin no more, they're a reminder that true sorrow carries with it, obviously, repentance and a, a purpose of amendment. Now, one thing that just came to me sitting here, um, we see in verse 10 and 11 how everyone goes away. No one condemns her. And it occurred to me that, you know, the closer that we get to our Lord, the less likely it's going to be for us to condemn our neighbor. It's almost like these men, when they are in the presence of Christ, it's impossible for them to condemn this poor woman. They, they go away. And so too, I would say that the closer we stand to our Lord, the more merciful we're going to be to sinners, the, the more we're going to help to, to bring them close to our Lord and, and help them to stand there with our Lord. Now, if you'd like, as I mentioned at the start, you can go ahead and pause this here and maybe make your meditation. But I'm going to go on now with the second part of this, which is the woman, uh, the sinful woman anointing the feet of our Lord. It's Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And one of the Pharisees, Simon, desired him to eat with him. And he went into the house of the Pharisee and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman that was in the city, a sinner, when she knew that he sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And standing behind at his feet, she began to wash his feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And the Pharisee who had invited him, seeing it, spoke within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know surely who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to thee. But he said, Master, say it. 
A certain creditor had two debtors, the one who owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And whereas they had not wherewith to pay, he forgave them both, which therefore of the two loves him the most. Simon answering said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most, and he said to him, Thou hast judged rightly. And turning to the woman, he said unto Simon, Dost thou see this woman? I entered into thy house, and thou gave me no water for my feet, but she with tears hath washed my feet, and with her hairs hath wiped them. Thou gave me no kiss, but she, since she came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but she with ointment hath anointed my feet. Wherefore I say to thee, many sins are forgiven her, because she hath loved much. But to whom less is forgiven, he loves less. And he said to her, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath made thee safe. Go in peace. So let's begin. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees, Simon, desired him to eat with him. And he went into the house of the Pharisee and sat down to meet. Now, typically in the gospel, we see that the Pharisees are the enemies of our Lord. But on the other hand, there were some who were good. And we're told that this one desired to eat with him. Now, on first uh, reading, we might say, well, perhaps this is one of the good ones. But then we remember that in, in our Lord's passion, remember that Herod was desirous of seeing our Lord as well. Is this individual inviting him out of a, a real goodwill, or is he perhaps trying to trap him? So he goes into the house of the Pharisee. He doesn't, he doesn't hold himself aloof. He's willing you know, to, to meet the person, let's say halfway. And yet we see that Simon, for whatever reason, he fails in the hospitality that should have been shown to any guest. Was this out of human respect for other people that were maybe there present? Was he simply not thinking? We don't know. We don't know the, the motives behind it, but we do know that he failed. Verse 37, And behold, a woman that was in the city, a sinner, when she knew that he sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now, we said just a moment ago, we don't know the motives of the Pharisee in, in forgetting, let's say, to, uh, to show the hospitality. But this woman, we're told that when she knew she went to perform these services, does she perhaps know the motive and the, and the way in which our Lord was going to be treated? Does she perhaps go there to honor him, knowing that he's not going to receive um, any honor uh, on his arrival? We wonder, too, is she taking some sort of a, uh, a chance? Did this, um, this episode, did it perhaps uh, precede the previous one? Is she the woman who perhaps was taken in adultery? Is she the one who the Pharisees had hauled before our Lord not, not long before? And to show her gratitude and show the depth of her repentance, she wants to go even at the you know, possible danger to her own life. I mean, this idea of crossing the Pharisees, I mean, you, know, you do so, you'll be sorry. And yet we see her go there. Verse 38. And standing behind at his feet, she began to wash his feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So not only falling down at his, at his feet, but, but kissing those same feet and washing them with her tears. Now, this might sound um, a bit awkward, perhaps. I mean, is she, is she crying so copiously that she uh, you know, is actually able to bathe someone's feet? 
Um, in fact, in, in the ancient uh, world, there were um, what were called, um, or I guess we would call them today, tear vases. And it was a, it was a small kind of bulb vase, had a very long, thin stem and then kind of a, a broad rim on it. And when a man went away, you know, when he went off to war or maybe on a long journey, his wife, you know, of course, weeping at his departure, she would catch her tears in, these, in this vase. And all the days that he was gone, when she would cry, she would save up those tears. And then when the man returned, she would pour out those tears to show just how much she missed him, for example. Now, this woman, of course, after you know being forgiven by our Lord and sent and told to sin no more, we can imagine her weeping, you know, seeing the love of God for her and her heart being moved at the great goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can see her certainly shedding copious amounts of tears of contrition, and these she comes and she pours out um, on, on the feet of our Lord. Perhaps this is how it worked with one of these vases. Perhaps she is actually weeping. Perhaps she's doing both. But it's very clear that she is contrite and sorry for her sins. Notice as well that she's wiping his feet with her hair. Now, St. Paul will say that, that a woman's hair is her glory. It is, it is one of her you know, richest adornments, we can say. And yet she uses that almost like a rag or a towel um, to, to abase and humble herself. We can compare this episode with the ep another episode before our Lord's Passion, where the box of ointment is actually broken and, and the, the smell of it, you know, fills the whole house. This is a, a, a separate episode, we would say, where, again, she uses this ointment to anoint our Lord's feet and show him this mark of honor. Verse 39, and the Pharisee who had invited him, seeing it, spoke within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know surely who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, that she is a sinner. Now, the first thing we might wonder is how is this Pharisee acquainted with this um, presumably harlot? Um, how was it as well that she was able to gain entrance to his home? Perhaps she had already been a visitor there before. We, we don't know. Um, but we see the Pharisee certainly having his own fixed ideas of what a prophet should be. And these ideas that he has, they don't, they don't match reality. And so he, um, he gives way to a kind of pharisaical scandal. Perhaps Simon was not present when this woman was brought before our Lord, because surely our Lord would have recognized her. And so he reasons, you know, surely if this man were our prophet, he would know that she was a sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to thee. But he said, Master, say it. So here Simon seems to be um, acting somewhat hypocritically. I mean, he's judging our Lord internally and yet reverencing him externally as master. Now, to be clear, when we do not manifest our true feelings towards somebody, um, either out of charity or just a desire to exercise self-mastery, this is not the same thing as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is to act in a way that is contrary to truth, in order to curry favor or gain some advantage. When we exercise charity or kindness towards those with whom we have a little affection or even a certain animosity, those who maybe the world would even classify as our enemies, when we do all that, it's not hypocrisy, it's not being a hypocrite, but it's rather being very much like our Lord. And of course, again, the more that we are like our Lord, the more we're gonna love these individuals as, as God loves them, 
and the easier it ought to be, we hope, to, to do good to them. So verse 41, 42, 43, we have the parable. So a certain creditor had two debtors, the one who owed 500 pence and the other 50. And whereas they had not wherewith to pay, he forgave them both. Which therefore of the two loves him most? Simon answering said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said to him, thou hast judged rightly. So in applying this to our lives or to the human condition, all men, in fact, are debtors to Almighty God. We are debtors in the very fact that he has created us and everything that we have and are is because of him. But we are all debtors as well because of sin. By our sins, we have merited destruction. And yet God has chosen to send us a Savior. And the sins that I committed, our Lord was forced to carry during his passion. He had to take those sins upon himself. And the load that he carried because of me, because of my sins, was obviously much heavier than the sins committed by, say, a St. Teresa of the Child Jesus. And that being the case, you would expect that my love for him would be that much more, knowing that, that I caused him that much more suffering and knowing how much more he forgave me than he forgave some other um, person who is also a sinner but obviously is not nearly um, as sinful as, as you or I. Now, this is precisely the application that our Lord makes in verse 44, 45, 46, and 47. And turned to the woman, he said unto Simon, Dost thou see this woman? I entered into thy house, and thou gave me no water for my feet. But she with tears hath washed my feet, and with her hairs hath wiped them. Thou gave me no kiss, but she, since she came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but she with ointment hath anointed my feet. Wherefore I say to thee, many sins are forgiven her, because she hath loved much. But to whom less is forgiven, he loves less. Now this is all very straightforward, and we've already spoken about it. But we can say that this isn't a hard, fast rule, but it certainly very often is the case. We see in the history of the church many great saints who in their prior life were very great sinners. We look at a St. Paul or a St. Augustine or a St. Mary of Egypt and, of course, Mary Magdalene. And one explanation why these individuals, uh, among many others, became such great saints is because it's often true that the more passionately, let's say, one falls into sin, once they are converted, that same passion and temperament is a drive pushing them towards God. They're, they were passionate in sin. Now they are passionate for God. And so that temperament of theirs can be either a snare that the devil uses to drag them down to hell or a great tool in, in making them great saints. And it can be a kind of consolation even for those who in the past maybe have made mistakes. It's almost a kind of, a, of an edge, we would say, that that person would have over somebody who had never sinned or never strayed. This is because such an individual has more motive to love since they see better the goodness, mercy, and, and love of God for their soul. Verse 48, 49, and 50. And he said to her, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath made thee safe. Go in peace. These people that Christ is dining with, of course, again, they are scandalized because he dares to forgive sins. And they ask, quite rightly, who can forgive sins but God? This is the same question that a Protestant might ask when he 
hears that a, a Catholic goes to confession and the priest forgives him his sins, he would say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, the answer is, is that when we go to confession, it is God that forgives our sins using, of course, the instrument of the priest. And why is it this way? Well, this is because our Lord has instituted it as such. Christ gave to the apostles and their successors the power to bind and to loose, to, to forgive or to retain sins. And of course, our Lord, he can forgive sins without the person necessarily going to confession explicitly because Christ can see the heart and he can see the true contrition that's there. For the priest who can't read the souls, obviously, this contrition must be manifested in words and actions of the penitent. Our Lord tells her that thy faith hath made thee safe. We can compare these to the words that our Lord spoke to Jairus, um, only believe and she will be safe. And at the same time to the woman with the issue of blood that her faith had made her whole, making one safe, making one whole, making one complete. But of course, it isn't just a faith alone, but it's a faith that moves us to act. Our Lord says elsewhere that if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And St. Paul writing to the Romans, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So it is not just faith, but faith living by charity and following the will of God and the laws of God in the church that he established. So, in looking at sinners and the way that our Lord treats them, our purpose here has been mainly to, to show ourselves, to, to remind ourselves of the goodness and the mercy of God and remembering always that Christ's example is one for us to follow. We are meant to be merciful. We are meant to bring others to Christ. And again, we do that with a true charity, not telling sinners that, hey, it's okay to sin, but trying to pull them from the depths of sin, firstly by our prayers, then by our sacrifice, then by the good example of the life that we lead. And then finally, after all of this, when grace has prepared the soil of their souls to hear it, a prudent, gentle, humble, and above all charitable admonition. So, as I mentioned at the start, if you want to break up these two scenes into two separate meditations, you're certainly welcome to do so. If there's one perhaps that speaks to you more than, than the other, you can certainly focus most of your meditation time there. But whatever you do, again, try and learn from the example of our Lord and see how we might apply this in our life. Take care and God bless you.